The joy of the Lord comes from the soul-satisfying assurance that we are fully and completely accepted by God in the righteousness of Christ. began this chapter three in which Paul is, in some ways, he's changing topics just a little bit. He is talking to them from this point on exclusively about their joy, their experiencing, their full experiencing of the joy of the Lord. And so he says to them, rejoice in the Lord. He commands them now. He says, be joyful in the Lord. And then he begins to think about these things that can rob them or or uh, take from them their experiencing of the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is a gift from God unto all of those in whom His Spirit dwells. And so we don't need to create or manufacture the joy of the Lord, but there are ways that we can live and ways that we can think which mute our experience of the joy of the Lord. And Paul is concerned about this. So he says to them, I'm going to say these things. I've said them to you before, but I'm going to say them again because this will keep you from stumbling. This will keep you safe. It will keep you from stumbling into the place in your faith in which you no longer are living in the fullness of the joy of the Lord. Paul doesn't want that for them. So he's going to say to them, I'm going to say these things. You've heard me say them before. I've written them to you before, but I'm going to say them again because I don't want you to stumble into these things. And so he begins with this example from his own life of how he has lived for so many years up until the point that he met the risen risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He lived for so many years trusting in his works, trusting in himself, trusting in his identity. His identity in the Lord was built upon his heredity and it was built upon his accomplishments. It was built upon his learning, his achievements. And He's going to say to them that that is a recipe for the losing of the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord comes from the soul satisfying assurance that we are fully and completely accepted by God in the righteousness of Christ. And as we are fully assured and completely certain that we have all of God's love and all of God's acceptance, then the joy of the Lord flourishes But once we begin to introduce into our faith, into our thinking, uh, any sort of idea that that God accepts us even a little bit based on who we are, what we've done in the past, what we've accomplished, the moral things that we do, the, the, uh, the sins that we avoid, whatever it may be, as soon as we begin to base something upon something within us or something that we've done or something from our past, then the joy of the Lord begins to erode because again, the joy of the Lord is that soul-satisfying assurance that God fully, completely accepts me based not on myself, but on the righteousness of Christ. And so if God accepts me fully and completely upon the righteousness of Jesus, there's nothing that I can do to, to remove that. But once we begin thinking that at least part of our relationship with God is based upon what we do or what we have done, then the joy of the Lord is then in danger. So in saying this to the Philippians, Paul is then going to give this example from his own life. We talked about this the last time we were in in the uh, Philippians chapter 3, the uh, salvation experience of Paul. 
We talked about how there's two aspects, two, two things going on, in essence, with the salvation of Paul, with the salvation of any of us. The first, the first thing is Acts chapter 9, the road to Damascus, where, where Jesus Christ interjects himself into Paul's life. He stops him on the road to Damascus. He injects himself into Paul's thinking, into Paul's life. He blinds him with this light. Paul falls from his horse and there's this voice from heaven and, and God has just intervened into Paul's life in order to convert him and save him. So that's one thing that happens is the sovereign Lord of the universe is resurrecting a dead sinner back to life. But the other thing that's going on is what Paul talks about here and that's what's going on in Paul's heart. As he meets the risen Jesus and he realizes his eyes are opened and he realizes that Jesus is Messiah and Jesus died for him, then his, his desires change, his treasures change, his heart changes in such a way that the things that he valued before now become not valuable at all to him. He looks upon Christ and he sees Christ as his treasure. And then all those things that were keeping him from Jesus, all of his, his religious accomplishments, his learning, his education, his heredity, all those things then become completely different for Paul. They're no longer an, an asset, but they are a liability for him. He says, all those things that I was treasuring before, they are like refuse now. They're garbage to me now because now I've seen Jesus and he's my treasure. That's what was going on in Paul's heart as God intervenes into his life to save him and convert him and opens his eyes to the beauty of the Messiah. So Paul is telling this to the Philippians by way of example to say, now this is what my experience was. This is what happened in my life. And so I'm telling you this so that you will be cautious. You won't go down this path. These Judaizers that are coming, that are saying to you, you know, you need to do this, you need to be circumcised, uh, all these sorts of things. Paul says, don't go down that road because that will cause you to, to put trust in the flesh or trust in yourself or trust in something that you've done. And from that point on, the joy of the Lord is then in danger. So this is, this is Paul's warning to them. And so we're going to pick up now at verse 7 and 8. Last time we made our way down through verses 5, 6, uh, and into verse 7, and we talked about the things that, that Paul has looked upon in his past, and he used to treasure them. He used to think so highly of these accomplishments of his. He used to value them. But now his desires have completely changed. That which he tried to kill before, he was trying to, to kill Christians and imprison Christians, that which he tried to kill before is now his greatest desire. And so we talked about those things last time, and we made it up into chapter seven or verse 7, and we began talking a little bit about what Paul's going to say here in verse 7, but we didn't by any means fully talk about what Paul says in verse 7. So today we're going to look at verse 7, and we're going to look at verse 8, then we're going to look at verse 9, and we're going to, we're going to sort of uh, dip our toe into the water of verse 10. We're not going to by any means talk fully about verse 10 or 11. Next time we'll come back to verse 10 and 11. But today we'll be focusing on verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. Let's begin by reading from verse 1 down through verse 11. Starting from verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So there is a well-known saying of Jesus that's found in a couple of the Gospels that will be familiar to all of us. Let me begin by reading this, because the words that Jesus says here in Matthew 16 are words that are going to ring very familiar with the things that Paul is saying to us in this passage. Because Jesus is going to use some words that have to do with uh, financial aspects, with profit, with gain, with loss, with debts. And Jesus is also going to speak about something that we talked about last time. He's going to speak about this thing called this great exchange that there must be an exchange in our heart. We must see Jesus. And we must in our heart say, I will exchange everything for that. That's what Jesus is going to talk about. So as I read this, think on what Paul is saying and compare this to what Jesus is saying and then let this guide us through what Paul is going to say. So Jesus says in Matthew 16, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So we see it there. Jesus talks about profit. What will it profit someone? What will he gain if he gains the entire world? If there there would be no limit to the earthly gains that you could attain, Jesus says, would that exchange for your soul? And if that won't exchange for your soul, what will? What will a man give in return for his soul? For what will you gain? What will you profit? If you gain all things and yet lose your soul. So you hear in that the the language of profit, loss. You hear in that the language of exchange, of of ascertaining, of, of assessing, evaluating Jesus, and then determining in your heart, I will have Jesus if it costs everything else. You hear that, and so you hear the common theme that that carries over into Paul's language. He says here in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul had these gains in his life. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. 
We're told in Acts that he was descended from a line of Pharisees. He was leading. He says to the Galatians, he was, he was advancing in Phariseeism beyond those of his own age. He was the next rising star in the world of Judaism. He was born with a religious silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So even before he was born, it was like he was set onto this path and he had everything going for him. And he didn't just sort of coast along, but he worked and he applied himself and he had attained far more than those of his own age had attained. He was on the path to stardom. And he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. And we don't know if this was an instantaneous change in his heart or whether it took some time for him to evaluate what had happened and think about this Jesus that he met. I suspect that it probably took some time just for all this to sink in. But eventually, whether it be days later or weeks later, eventually he comes to the point in which he realizes that man that I met out there on that road I will give everything for Him. If I can have Him, if I can know Him, then everything else, all these things that I have been trusting in, I will count them as loss. Now, it's interesting to me that there's only one other place in our Bibles in which the word that Paul uses for loss, there's only one other place that shows up. It's in Acts 27. Two times in verse 10 and verse 21. Acts chapter 27 is a perfect example, I think, of what exactly Paul is trying to get across here. Because what he's saying is, there are these things in my life that I work for and I considered them to be gain. I considered them to be profit. Until I realized that not only were they not profit for me, they were actually loss. They were a liability. It was as though something from the asset column didn't just get neutralized, but it got switched over to the debt column. So in Acts 27, we find this word show up the only other time in our New Testament. So I just find it ironic because it is, again, the perfect example. Because in Acts chapter 27, what's going on is Paul is under arrest and he's being taken to Rome. And you recall he's on the ship and there's the storm day after day. They're lost at sea. Uh, They've got no rudder, they've got no control, they are lost at sea. And then Paul says to them, as they're approaching these rocks, Paul says to them, we've got to jettison the cargo. The ship is loaded down with this heavy cargo of wheat. And Paul says to them, we've got to throw the cargo overboard or we're all going to die. And so two times he talks about throwing the cargo overboard as loss. We've got to accept the loss using the same word in order to save our life. You see the example there. So here's this ship that was carrying this cargo that was profit for the ship owner, for the merchant, for the ship captain. It was going to be profit for for them to take this cargo and sell it. But then they realized the profit is going to kill us. We've either got to get rid of what was the gain, what was to be the profit. We've either got to get rid of that or we're going to die on these rocks. So they throw the wheat overboard and their lives are saved. The ship sinks, but their lives are saved. That's the perfect example of what Paul is talking about. Here my life had all these things that were profit to me until I realized, wait a minute, 
all those things that I thought were profit, they're sinking me. They're going to be my death. They're going to be my eternal death. They're going to be my spiritual undoing unless I jettison the cargo in order to save my soul. And so that's what Paul's getting at here. This, this idea that he looks upon the things of, of accomplishment, the things of heredity, and he says, those things, I thought that they were helping me, but they're actually sinking me. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, literally for Him, for Him, for Christ. I counted these things as loss. So what Paul doesn't say is he doesn't say, when I met Jesus, all these things that I thought were helping me actually weren't helping me at all. He doesn't say that I met Jesus on the road to Damascus and you know I thought that all these this religious heritage and all these these accomplishments and achievements and this moral life that I was living, I thought that that was helping me, but now that I find Jesus, I think that Jesus is much better. He doesn't say the one was good, but Jesus is better. He says the one was bad. The one was lost. The one was sinking me, like the wheat that was sinking the ship in the storm. Jesus is not just better. Paul has a complete reversal and he says those things weren't just not getting me where I wanted to go. Those things were killing me. The point that we should see here is this. Morality without Jesus damns us. And that is a revolutionary thought for some people. I recall the first time that I really sort of put all this together because we all sort of especially if we grow up in the context of the church, we, we, we have this understanding about morality and the, the life of the church that even if we don't have that change of heart, that it's still good to be within the context of the church and live moral lives. You know, it, it would be a lot better if we would just accept Jesus and, and receive His salvation and, and have that new life in Him. But until then, at least we're in church. However, what Paul is saying here is those things aren't just not quite good enough. Those things are damning. Do you realize that morality without a new heart damns you? The Word of God, listening to the preaching of the Word of God without believing it, damns you. When we hear the Word of God and we don't believe it and we don't submit to it, it's not, that's not neutral. That's hardening for us. Paul again says those things without Jesus, without a new heart, those things weren't just morally neutral. Those things were the wheat that was dragging the ship to the bottom. And so oftentimes we can, we can think, well, it, it sure would be good if, if so-and-so, if this loved one or that friend was just all in it for Jesus, but at least they're not living an immoral life or at least they're not doing this or at least they come to church sometimes. And I just encourage you, I challenge you to rethink that. Morality without Jesus is damning to us. When we hear the Word of God preached, when we expose ourselves to the Word of God, to the people of God and do so Without a new heart, we are, in, a, in essence, equipping ourselves to be better legalists. 
we are equipping ourselves to be better at justifying ourselves. That's what happens. And all of us know what it's like. I've known this my whole life. All of us know what it's like to be in a church with people that, that come every week, week in and week out. They know the Word of God. They know the Scriptures. And their heart is hard. And because they know the Word of God, they are excellent at justifying themselves because they know what His Word says. And all of us have a heart that deeply, deeply wants to justify ourselves. And so without the convicting work of the Holy Spirit within us, if we are lost and we have the morality of God's people without Jesus, then it's not like we're almost there. The hardest people to reach are the lost religious. You know that to be true? The hardest people to reach are the lost religious. I was listening recently to uh, Paul Washer. This is sort of a theme of Paul Washer's. He preaches on this uh, frequently. And he was putting it this way, that, that, he, that that's what, as he sees it, the main problem in most evangelical churches today is that there is a body of people, most of them are carnal, lost people who know the Word of God. And then there'll be a remnant of people among them who are truly believers and truly born again. And yet, because the majority of the people are carnal, then it's stifling to the, to the remnant that's there. And so, the hardest people to reach, to reach are the lost religious. Here's how Paul Miller puts it. Legalism reinforces self-righteousness because it communicates to you the good news of your own Goodness. That's what legalism does. That's what this was doing for Paul. That's what his heritage was doing. That's what his learning was doing. That's what his Pharisee achievements were doing. They were communicating to Paul the gospel of his own goodness. And the more that he drank in that gospel, the harder he was to reach. And so this is why his conversion had to be so dramatic. Paul, uh, God had to smack him off his horse on the road to Damascus because he was so invested in his own goodness, that it took a lot to reach it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.